When was the last time you were really hungry? Really hungry. I mean, missing more than probably one meal uh, in a stretch. Can you remember what that was like? The noises that your stomach made. How you tried to think about something else, but your mind kept drifting back to food again and again. When you're truly hungry, it really monopolizes your attention. You've probably experienced that. I remember getting lost on a bike trip uh, with my brother Caleb. Uh, we were out at Mammoth, I think. Uh, I'm terrible with dates and places and times, so just forgive me. Um, we were somewhere together riding bikes, and we had rented these bikes, and the trail signs were misleading, um, uh, which is still our theory to this day. Um, but we ended up uh, lost for quite some time. And uh, we had a couple of granola bars and I think a bottle of water maybe between the two of us. And I can remember as day turned to evening, uh, that sense of desperation grew because we were in an unfamiliar place. And uh, it was hard to get our minds off anything else other than food and just finding it somewhere. Uh, true hunger, it, it, it ups your willingness, right? Um, hungry people are not picky eaters. Uh, I've, I've thought it would be a wise to let my kids go a whole, whole day without eating food, just to teach them that their, their disgust for certain foods is totally conditional, like, right? There's this assumption that they'll have food, maybe digging up grubs in the backyard if it came to it, and like, um, but maybe you know that, that feeling of, of a greater willingness to, to enjoy the simple things. Maybe you've been hiking out in the forest for several days and you get out that freeze-dried package of whatever it is and cook it up and it just tastes so good. You ever been there? Well, eventually, uh, my brother and I, we did find a road and we hitchhiked back to where we were staying and, and I remember just feasting that night. I think it was all the same food that we had eaten <laughs> all week, but man, it tasted different that night. Because my willingness was at an all-time high, right? So hunger grabs our attention and it increases our willingness. And, and throughout the Bible, um, the Bible actually uses these feelings of hunger and thirst to teach us things and to, to, to make comparisons, to show us what our need for God is like. They are God's daily metaphors and God's daily reminders to us. In fact, you remember when God subjected Israel to Hunger and thirst in the wilderness. Remember that. And he did, he did that to test them, he says in his word. He, he had delivered them from Egypt in this miraculous way, and now he was leading them to the promised land. So the question was, how would they respond when their bellies got hungry? Would they want to obey God, or would they want to get back to Egypt as quick as they could? And even though they whined at Moses and they longed for Egypt, God, in his wisdom, provided this bread called manna. Remember that? Which was, I think it was in the original language, what is it? Is what manna means. Is that mysterious to them? But he gave them this manna, and he did so one day at a time. I think by design. He provided water when they needed it. You remember when they were there and they uh, struck the rock and water comes out of a rock? Remember that? Or when they found bitter water in the wilderness and uh, threw a log in it and it made it sweet, like a log was going to make water sweet. But the Lord provided for them as was needed. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8, just a few verses looking back on these times. And Moses is speaking. He says, 
to the people of Israel, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every, mer- every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It goes on, it says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. You'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. What an object lesson in the wilderness for the people of Israel. What was the point of that object lesson? The point was to teach them that they were not self-sufficient, that they were utterly reliant and dependent on God alone. God was showing them that their ultimate satisfaction, their ultimate need was Him. He was telling them, bread does not ultimately sustain you. I sustain you. Water is not what you need most. I am what you need most. And as he's teaching them those things, he's leading them to the promised land, which is described like this in Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 10. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. After reading that, I want to go there. I don't enjoy pomegranates, but I want to be here, you know? And this is the place, this is the land that the Lord is leading them as he's teaching them to rely on him. This is their destination. And then they get to their their destination. They get to the promised land and it wasn't enough for them. The rest of the Old Testament tells us how their hearts were indeed lifted up by pride and self-sufficiency. And so God disciplined them by removing them from that blessed land. As I thought about this text and I thought about where we're going to be in John 6, it just left me wondering, how will the restless hearts of God's people ever be satisfied in a way that's lasting? How will that ever happen if that wasn't good enough? Will this lesson ever be learned? Will this bread from heaven ever produce God's outcome of human beings seeing that their truest need is not stuff, but it's him? How about you this morning? Are you satisfied? Would you describe your heart as satisfied or as restless? 
Sure, we all experience dissatisfaction at times, but where is it that we turn when our hearts are restless? Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. You didn't misread the bulletin. This is our text for this morning, not Deuteronomy 8. But Deuteronomy 8 is the backdrop for our passage. We're going to fast forward a few hundred years, obviously, uh, from this lesson in the wilderness. And we're going to see some, some similarities, actually, between God the Son, between Jesus and God's people of Israel. Just by way of context, before we read our actual text, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, I'll read it briefly. It says this, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Now, the context, we don't have time to get into the whole chapter of chapter 6, but Passover has begun, and there's this testing of the disciples that Jesus gives out, and of course, they say, well, there's not enough to go around. You'd have to have a super Walmart right here for even to pull this off. What do you mean, Jesus? And so Jesus proceeds to, to bring bread from heaven and feed thousands of people out of thin air, seemingly. And as they picked up all the leftovers, there were 12 baskets, one for each of them, to continue this lesson that I think started in Deuteronomy chapter 8 into John 6. So they leave from there, and Jesus actually leaves the crowds, and he doesn't take a boat across the sea like his disciples had done. He just decides to walk across it, because you can just do that when you're Jesus, I guess. And so, in that context, this is where we pick it up in John chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. Why don't you go ahead and stand with with me as we read our our primary text this morning. John chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. Here's what it says. When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You can be seated. There is no way we're going to be able to do this full text justice this morning, but I do want to look at this text as a way to reassess how we are seeking and finding satisfaction in the Christian life. We'll tease out implications as we go, and we'll do fourfold, you see there in your little outline. First, we'll look at false satisfaction, then acquiring satisfaction, and then finally, the all-satisfying son. And we'll take communion together. So here's the point. It's simple. Jesus offers himself as the all-satisfying source of eternal life. Jesus offers himself as the all-satisfying source of eternal life. Let's look how this starts off in this, this pursuing of false satisfaction in 25 through 27. The crowds approach him, and they've got a question. Jesus flips the crowd's question on them. They ask, well, when did you get here? They're curious. They, they saw the boat on the shore, and we're not, they knew the disciples had left, and all of a sudden Jesus is there, and they're trying to make it all make sense, and it's not. These people are maybe miracle chasers. They've, they've seen him do something phenomenal, and so they're curious what he's going to do next. But Jesus, instead of answering their question, just flips the question around and really asks, why are you here? He says, you're not actually most curious about my transportation methods. You're more interested in getting more food. I mean, you think about it, if you just watched a guy create a meal for seven, 8,000 people, you're probably wondering what he's going to do next. What else can this guy do? And so these guys, this crowd chases them down. And in this text, in 25 through 27, you'll notice that Jesus distinguishes between two kinds of food in verse 27. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The food that perishes is the kind of food that they have access to, the kind they buy and sell and make. But Jesus says that this eternal type of food or this eternal type of bread There's only one authorized distributor of it. And we know that because of what he says in the next sentence, for on him God the Father has set his seal, meaning there's there's a line of approval from the Father to the Son that, that the Father says, yes, the Son is the one who gets to distribute the eternal kind of bread that I'm going to give. That's what's meant by that phrase. He's the authorized one, the Son of Man. Now, just note the tragedy of this scene. This crowd is standing in the presence of God. You are face to face with God, with the God who is spoken of in Psalm 16 when it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the one who the crowd is with. And what this crowd is most interested in is a free lunch and maybe a free dinner. Imagine that. 
It reminds me of a couple of Old Testament images that I came across this week in studying. One is Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, when it says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's what's happening. They want the bread that perishes. They're preferring that. Another image is out of Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Um, I'm going to read that for us because it's really a poignant example of what we're what we're talking about. Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13. It's just gripped me this week. It says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. About what? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see the imagery where there's this fountain, this wellspring, just pouring out fresh, clean, cold water, with mankind on the side digging with all of his might to create a cistern that doesn't actually hold anything and preferring the muddy water of a broken cistern? It's the image that we have, I believe, in John 6. They're standing in the presence of the bread of life, and they just want another loaf. There are some implications to this. As we think about what this means in our context, there are human beings who associate themselves with Jesus for all kinds of reasons, Right? Some cling to him as a part of their heritage. I grew up in a Christian family, and it's a part of my tradition. It's kind of like uh, their association with Jesus is like being Italian, or like being a Raiders fan, or whatever it is that you grew up with, right? Some align themselves with Jesus to get something from him. They take his good news and twist it to mean that prosperity and healing are owed them. They use the King of Kings to secure food that will perish, that Jesus is somehow their servant of their kingdom and their needs and their purposes, not vice versa. I mean, think how short-sighted this crowd is and how uh, we can be at times. To cling to Jesus as a part of your heritage. To be satisfied with just being kind of in a, the room and kind of an acquaintance relationship when he's offering you adoption into his family. To choose temporary gain over eternal gain, the ultimate insanity, right? To choose the kind of kingdom that you can build with your 80 years versus the kind of kingdom that, that Jesus Christ possesses and owns and will certainly bring about. This is like being given a blank check from Bill Gates and writing $2 in it. This is madness. We just want more food. This begs a question I think that would be helpful for us to consider is why are we aligning ourselves with Jesus? What is motivating our pursuit of Him? 
Do we view him as the only authorized source of eternal life and satisfaction? Is that how we see him? Are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping his gifts? The question I thought of this week is, if I had every worldly thing that my heart hungered for, would I be satisfied? Are you living the life, living a life for the bread that perishes or the life that lasts? Maybe in your discouragement or frustration or desperation at trying to find satisfaction in Jesus, you've just conceded that it's not possible and you're just conceding and, and trying to get satisfaction wherever you can find it. So this is the station of the crowd in verses 25 through 27. This false satisfaction that they're pursuing that Jesus really surfaces and wants them to see. Do you notice what he said? After he says in verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. <laughs> he says, it's available. It's here. It's offered. Not false satisfaction, but true satisfaction. Let's look at acquiring satisfaction in 28 through 34. Notice the crowd's response. It makes actually a lot of sense. When they say in verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, Jesus, if you're the unique distributor of this type of eternal bread, and you don't want us to labor for the kind of bread that perishes, how do we labor for the eternal kind? Right? Does that make sense? Now, when they're saying the works of God, they don't mean what God is doing. They mean, what kind of works are required to get this better kind of bread? What do we have to do? And so not only is their motive wrong, but their method is going to be wrong as well because Jesus gives this great answer. This is so helpful if you think that being a busy body for Jesus will get you stars and credit with him. Strap in for 29. Here's what it says. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This, in other words, is what God requires. That you believe in him whom he has sent. See, what God requires is trust in the one he sent. It's a different kind of work than this crowd is thinking, right? They're thinking about law-keeping and all these things, which will come in time, obviously, as we know in Christ, but the most difficult thing in all the world is not to, not to labor and to strive and to stress and to uh, work your way to salvation. The hardest thing in all the world to do is to humble yourself, isn't it? to acknowledge your need for God, to distrust yourself and to trust Him. I love the lyrics of the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, written by Joseph Hart in the 18th century, and it captures this well. He says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings us nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you may never come at all. Not the righteous, 
not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. The last verse is my favorite. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness, meaning you're good enough, fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Isn't this a stunning response from Jesus to this crowd? Here is the work of God. Believe in me. That's where you start. You start trusting the right thing, the right person. Doesn't this amaze you that, that that's God's response to what God requires? Trust me. Trust me. Delight in me. Praise me. Make me central. Make me first. That's where you start. Not laying out a life of righteousness and holy demands. But he starts with belief and faith. And then the crowd just has a classic response. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You know, Jesus, if we're going to put our belief in you, we, we got to see something. You got to prove yourself to us. You've got to be worth our time and our trust. So do something like what Moses did in the wilderness, because we trusted him, which they didn't, but either way. And their response is so ironic for two reasons. First, Jesus just fed thousands of people out of thin air. Remember that? That's the whole reason they're there. They marched all the way across the sea to find him because of the miracles he just did. And then they're saying, well, you really got to show, show us that you're worthy of this kind of trust. The people's response when Jesus did this miracle in John 6 was, quote, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They tried to make him king after he did this, it says in John chapter 6. You can see that this, it's not a lack of proof that's the problem, really, right? It's the presence of unbelief. But the second irony is related to what they go on to say in verses 32, uh, sorry, 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they, they make a reference to this Deuteronomy 8 and then to the scene in Exodus. And the, the ironic thing is that the manna in the wilderness and the water from the rock were both intended to point to God's true bread, who is Jesus. So, the, the wilderness wanderings and the, and the food and the rock are the shadow. They're the, they're the forerunner. They're the thing that point to the substance, to the reality, to the true and lasting bread, who is Jesus. And they're saying, you know, you really need to whip up something special like the shadow. And he's the point of it. And notice Jesus says, well, it actually wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. From, it was my father. But then notice what he says. It was not in 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you. Present tense, right now, standing in front of you. True bread is talking to you. I'm here. In 1 Corinthians 10, it actually says, it warns the believers in Corinth against idolatry, and Paul says, 
they don't want to put Christ to the test, picking up language from Deuteronomy 8. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, Exodus, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Jesus is saying, guys, I'm it. I'm the point of the manna. He even says later on in, in John chapter 6, your fathers ate the manna and they died. <laughs> like that manna was so good that they died. And I'm offering you eternal life. So, what are the implications of this? of how to acquire this satisfaction that this group is so confused about who's talking with Jesus. Well, can you resonate with the phrase, laboring for the food that perishes? I don't just mean in your work and you have to have food in your fridge. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying, do you know what that's like in a, in a spiritual sense? Where you've tried to find satisfaction again and again um, in your own customized way, as opposed to God's requirement of belief and faith and trusting in what He's doing? You find yourself striving in the flesh to please God in ways that make sense to you, but are not ways in which He is commanded? If that's you this morning, remember that all the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent Loving God is far more than doing what He asks. God desires to be trusted and found trustworthy. He desires to be leaned on and proven true. He desires to be treasured above all things. And when we reduce love for God to obedience to God, you, you basically take out the engine of the car. <laughs> because it's our love for God, it's our desire for God, it's our hunger for His glory that drives our obedience, that drives our worship, that drives our giving, that drives our evangelism. It's love for God that drives everything else. And you see what it's, what it's like for a crowd to just want eternal bread without loving God, without seeing and exercising faith in the Son who's standing right in front of them. Let's look at the all-satisfying son in verses 35 through 40. And here is really where our point comes in, where Jesus offers himself as the all-satisfying source of eternal life. Everything is kind of working with the crowd to build them to this point, to build them to 35, when Jesus just comes out with it and he says, I am the bread of life. <laughs> whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They, they crowded, said in 34, sir, give, yeah, that's this bread sounds great. This, that sounds like quite the deal. Let's do this. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm it. I'm the eternal food. I'm the source of satisfaction. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says that whoever comes to him shall not hunger or thirst? He's obviously not talking about physical cravings. When you became a Christian, you didn't stop eating, stop drinking. Or at least I hope you didn't. You wouldn't be here. We still need food and water. But in John, there's a couple different times that Jesus talks like this. It's a discussion with the women at the well. Do you remember that in John chapter 4? 
Jesus says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sounds a lot like the crowd, right? But this promise of eternal life, if you look at chapter 7 and verse 37 through 39, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This is in the midst of a, there's a water um, ceremony that happens during this Feast of Tabernacles, which is, is kind of a mixture of a, they pull up from the pool of Siloam and take it all the way up to the temple, and it's this imagery of this desiring for the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John makes this little comment. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John's gospel is pointing to this satisfying, self-replenishing, unending kind of life that Jesus is going to give that's then going to be imparted and, and appropriated by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here is claiming to be that all-satisfying source of eternal life. I mean, imagine someone getting up in the House of Congress and saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never... I mean, it's the absurdity of the totality of a statement like that. It's bizarre. And he says it, oh, he says it in all kinds of ways in John. I'm the light of the world, right? I'm the gate. Over and over again, I am what you are looking for. I am the source of eternal life. Eternal life is not found within a certain philosophy. Eternal life is not the result of a process. Eternal life is not a product, no matter how late you watch those infomercials on TV. Eternal life is found in a person. And his name is Jesus. Even the best human life is not satisfying in the way that eternal life will be. And he is the source of that endless satisfaction. He resolves that central emptiness that each of us are haunted by before we meet life himself. Do you long for eternal life? Do you long for perfect communion with God that's uninterrupted by sin? And by suffering? Do you long for a life that has no restraints or sickness? I mean, that stuff sounds like a pipe dream, doesn't it? That sounds so far out there. And Jesus is saying, I'm the source of that. I give that away. In Revelation 7, speaking of those who are faithful to Christ through the great tribulation, at the end of time it says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is the destiny of every person who is trusted in Christ. That eternal life, it's, it's not bogus. It's not made up. It's not a crutch to get you through 85 painful years on a cursed planet. That's not what it is. It's a real thing. And Jesus gives it away. It's remarkable that he has the authority to do that. Listen to C.S. Lewis as he describes this desire for heaven, this desire for eternal life. He says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it. Eternal life is a real thing. And it's not madness and stupidity to think that it's a real thing either. Jesus here offers it in its fullness, in its richness, free of cost to them. But then the text continues after saying that he is the bread of life in verse 36. And he rebukes them saying that they actually don't believe says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. See, they see him, but they don't see him. They see him, but they don't acknowledge him. They don't believe in him. They're, they look at him and they, they want more. They need more evidence. They need more proof. Notice that Jesus has every confidence in the sovereignty of God's election and God's choice. All those who are given to the Son by the Father will come to him, and when they come, they are kept Hallelujah. Jesus is resolved to only do the Father's will, making sure that all those who are appointed to salvation make it to the end, or as he describes it as being raised on the last day. So those who, are, those who come are kept and raised. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a certain thing. God's sovereign election does not remove the need for a willing response. In fact, it's proven by that, which is why he was saying Come to me. That's why in verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That's the marker of a person who is elect, responsive to the gospel. If you keep reading in John 6, people continue to, to struggle to see, like, isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid? Like, where does this guy get off? What in the world? And it gets worse. Jesus starts saying things that are even harder to swallow to the point in verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Like, this is, this is, too, this is, this is too simple. This is too all-encompassing. This guy is claiming too much. And so Jesus challenges his own disciples and says, you're going to leave too. I mean, what a salesman. 
Jesus says at this point, right? I mean, <laughs> it's unbelievable. And the disciples say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They're saying, Jesus, we can't unsee what we've seen. And we don't get all the language about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. A lot of that doesn't make sense to us. But we can't unsee your glory. So as we consider the condition of our hearts, let me ask again, how hungry are you spiritually? How satisfied are you in the person and salvation of Jesus? Is your heart gripped by who he is? There is a form of of unsatisfying relationship with God. And many people are down on duty. And I would, would add my name to that list. And yet duty, I think, is almost a form of grace to continue on as we muddle through trying to have sincere affections for God. But if all of our life with God is duty, that's an unsatisfying relationship with God, isn't it? That's not enjoying the bread of life. That's not enjoying eternal life as Jesus has designed it. C.S. Lewis says this, the less one has to try to be good, the better. A perfect man would never act from sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God and other people, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it's idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs can do the journey on their own. I think it's a fitting description for what, it, what we wrestle with as we try to have a sincere relationship with God that's, that's vibrant and alive. Some of us are just driven by duty. And I just want to remind you that being a Christian and loving God also includes affection. John Piper says, conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new duties. New delights, not just new deeds. New treasures, not just new tasks. Love is not a mere choice to move the body or the brain. Love is also an experience of the heart, so the stakes are very high because Christ is to be cherished, cherished, not just chosen. God is glorified in His people by the way we experience Him, not merely by the way we think about Him. Indeed, the devil thinks more true things about God in one day than a saint does in a lifetime, and God is not honored by it. The problem with the devil is not his theology, but his desires. I uh, had the privilege of sitting with uh, Mark and Sue Stone this last week and just catching up with them. We were going to play sequence, but we got to talking, and you know where that goes. So, um, But it was just a joy to, to talk and to see God at work in the life of Mark. He couldn't be here this morning. I was going to have him share this, but he's had a rough couple days. Um, but I was telling him where we were going this Sunday. He said, well, what we're after is, is to have hearts that are fully after God. And, and, and he told me about uh, just a few days earlier on Monday night when he was just struck with dread. He's, he's got ALS, and he's, we're, we're all seeing signs of that happening. And, but he said he spent some time with the Lord, and he, he just was listening to different scripture and thinking about what, who God was, and it just it lifted him and allowed him to, to almost in a transcendent way to enjoy the beauty of God and the glory of God, even though he's in this very undesirable situation. As we sat there, he was reflecting on 
all the duties that he had done over the course of his life. And he told me that, that he looks at the story of Martha and Mary in a totally different way. Where, where the story is where Martha is busy serving the Lord and is frustrated and resentful and Mary is the one who's deciding to sit at his feet. And he just started weeping. And I don't mean like what I'm doing. I mean like groaning, weeping. And he said, why does it take such suffering for, for the people of God to treasure the presence of God? If I had only known, I would have been Mary so many more times than I was Martha. What does it mean to be satisfied in God? What does that actually look like? It means that when you look at Jesus, you see his glory, that his beauty and his glory still move you. It means that there are times when you really come to him in prayer or worship, eager to glorify him and retrust him again, and you leave with a sense of confidence in him. It means that the comfort you find in his promises and his word, they sustain you when it's difficult. It means that you're choking off sources of false satisfaction. It means all those things. I don't want to just throw out this term, be satisfied in God, be satisfied in God. And you go, what does that really mean? How do I be Mary and not a Martha? There is a question here that kind of might be bugging you, that bugged me this week, which is, shouldn't I still be hungry and thirsty for God's presence, even though Jesus is saying to completely satisfy all my hunger and thirst? And my answer is, yes, you need to hunger for God still. It's kind of this unique thing. If you read Psalm 63, which might be a helpful way to reflect on this sermon and just pray Psalm 63, you find both those things. The psalmist says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But then verse 5 my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And he goes on from there. So at the same time, he's satisfied and he's thirsty. He's fed and yet he's, he's hungry. How does this work? Well, by coming to Jesus, we are granted eternal life. This satisfies our ultimate need, our ultimate questions, our ultimate identity. It makes us a child of God. It connects us with him, the source of life. And we are kept by God to eventually be raised to eternal life. That satisfaction is certain, it's true, but it doesn't just end there. It, the Holy Spirit then comes in and transforms our hearts and desires and affections according to the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit continually helps us to experience the reality that's already taken place through the gospel in Christ, as we saw in John 7, where there's a wellspring that keeps coming again and again. John Piper it says, when you drink my water, your thirst is not destroyed forever. If it did that, would you feel any need of my water afterward? That is not my goal. I'm going to speak from God's perspective. I do not want self-sufficient saints. When you drink my water, it makes a spring in you. A spring satisfies thirst, not by removing the need you have for water, but by being there to give you water whenever you get thirsty. Again and again and again. So do you see? The wellspring is created, and we keep drawing from that well again and again. 
maybe one simple way to commend this to you. You think, how could this possibly happen? How could I begin to have a heart that is seeking full satisfaction in Christ? I would encourage you to meditate in Scripture, to soak in Scripture. I know a lot of us feel really guilty about not reading, but reading the Bible is a means to an end. It is not the end. It is not the purpose. The purpose of reading the Bible is to relate to and worship and learn from and fear God. And I suspect that if some of you have the discipline to do this with regularity, that the challenge is to make them meaningful, right? And others of you are struggling to really do that at all, I would say, right? And so how, how can we do this? Well, what if we spent at least half of our time meditating on what we read or after hearing a sermon? I fear that in Christianity we're just eating a lot but we're digesting nothing. And part of the reason we're slowing down as a church is to, is to ask some of these questions and to really honestly assess Am I satisfied in God? Like, where am I at with Him? And maybe soaking in Scripture and praying the Psalms would be helpful. George Mueller, I think, says this in a helpful way. He's old and gone now. Famous guy, you can look him up. Um, but godly man. He says, for the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole without reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I've been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. Listen to this. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. Three places that we might be in and then we'll be done and we'll have some communion together. Some of you might be hearing for the first time that eternal life is possible and that it comes through a person. And I just wanted to share God's words with you, Christ's words. Here's what he says, if that's where you're sitting, if you're, if you're feeling a, 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 the need for the kind of life that's being described this morning. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of you are finding satisfaction in Jesus. Not perfectly, but you're finding it. And you're going back and forth between being satisfied and being hungry, and being satisfied and being hungry. Listen to Psalm 36, 7 through 8. This is for you. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Continue in that cycle. Continue to be a model of finding satisfaction in God and sharing with others how you're doing that. Last group. 
Some of you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You're Christians. You're followers of Christ. But you're struggling to hunger at all. And you're lacking satisfaction in Christ. You've tried to find satisfaction in other things and lo and behold, it's not working. There are psalms for you as well. It's the beauty of the scriptures. They're they're brutally honest. Psalm 42, 1 through 6. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I think he's been unsuccessful in that attempt. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This person is so frustrated, they're so down, that they're trying to persuade their own soul. Hope in God. Hope in God. Maybe this prayer of Tozer will help you as you think about what's next. He says, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Maybe that's you. There is hope. God is near. His word is true. There are ways. There are channels that he has cut for us to follow, to find his grace, to find our way out of the valley of the shadow of death. And sometimes we just need to pray, Lord, I want to want you. And he answers those prayers in time. What we're going to do is I'm going to pray The worship team is going to come up. They're going to play a song for us. And I want us just to reflect before we take communion. In John 6, Jesus goes on to to say um, basically how this eternal life is found. Um, He says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he goes on and explains what he means by that. And, and uh, of course, he's using hyperbole there. He's, this is a symbol that we have this morning for those who are in Christ to uh, remember the covenant that has been cut and, and finished and completed with God's people. This is a time to remember that. But I want us to, to reflect first and just to, to pray and ask for, for God to help us either to help us hunger and thirst at all or to hunger and thirst more, to praise him for being our satisfaction, whatever that would be. Let me pray for us as we enter into this time of quiet and then I'll come on back up and give us some instructions for communion after this song is done. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you offer us everlasting, unending, unrestrained, joy in you. Thank you, God, that that offer was even made at all.
Father, we did not deserve uh, to receive that offer, and yet, God, you gave it. Even to this crowd who are looking for entirely different things, for entirely different reasons, you said that the Son of Man is willing to give it. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that uh, we have been blessed by grace to hear about this good news, that you have made a way to be right with you, that though we are uh, not only sinful but sinners, that you can make people who were your enemies your family. And you can only do that because of the death, the perfect life and the exchanging death and the victorious resurrection of your son Jesus who ascended and will return again to judge. Father, help us to repent and believe, to trust in these, these words, this good news. God, when, when all around our soul gives way, God, I pray you'd, you'd help us to learn and to see our great need for you. To not labor for the food that perishes, but find everlasting life where it can be found, which is in your Son. So lead us in this time of reflection, God, as we think about these things. I pray you'd stir our hearts, you'd, you'd create hunger where there is none. You'd satisfy hunger where there is. And do that by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.